Hello and welcome back to the Limehouse podcast for episode two. What have you been up to? I don't care. What is happening in this episode? Let's have a think. First up, we've got Emily Frith, myself and Bobby Dean talking about prisons and the state of them at the moment. After that, we've got an interview with Nick Clegg. Uh, You know, a little um, excited about that. That's great. We'll be talking Brexit, his political awakening, as it were, um, and other stuff. Then we'll be talking Millwall Football Club. It doesn't really matter if you're into your football or not on this one. It's just a really great story uh, from local government uh, all the way up, actually, all the way up to the top. Uh, So stick around for it. It's going to be worth, worth the wait. The music today in the background is from a band called Escapist. Some of you might already already know them. They've been around, kicking around for a little while now. The song in the background is called Burial. I suggest you check it out. Anyway, enjoy enjoy the program. I'll see you on the other side. Bye. Right. Okay. Here we are with uh, Emily and and Bobby. Uh, Bobby, introduce yourself quickly. Uh, my name's Bobby Dean. I'm a Lewisham Liberal Democrat parliamentary spokesperson for Lewisham and Deptford. And Emily. Hi, I'm Emily Frith. I'm the parliamentary spokesperson for the Lib Dems for Lewisham East. Why, so, Emily, why why do why do you why do you want to talk about prisons in particular? Is it is it close to your heart? I think it's a really important issue for everyone in Britain. Um, we have the highest imprisonment rate in Western Europe, um, and that's a problem because prisons aren't helping us stop crime, and it costs a huge amount of money. Um, and actually, it's a really serious problem for those who are in prison. Um, lots of people in prison are there um, in relation to the fact that they've got really low literacy skills, they have had not a great start in life, so um, about a quarter of people in prison um, were um, children in care. That's compared to like 2% in the general population. Mm. So often, people who end up in prison, they might have committed a crime, but actually we failed them as a society as well because um, of the problems that we haven't helped them address in their lives. Um, and actually that matters for everybody because if we, if ultimately the country's goal is to have not so many victims of crime, then to help those victims of crime we need to do everything we can based on the best evidence to stop crimes happening in the first place. And the system we've got at the minute is not doing that. But we were talking earlier about the um, briefing room programme on, on, on Radio 4 and the, sp- the spike in, in population growth in, in prisons, what the hell is going on there? Like, surely now, 21st century, it should be about, right, rehabilitation. What are we doing about rehabilitation in prisons? Well, yeah, you're right. Like, since the 90s, um, the prison population's um, nearly doubled. Yeah. Um, and it, it's hugely overcrowded as well. And that's leading to safety problems. So we've seen riots happening in a, couple, a number oh, of yeah, prisons yeah. recently. That's what it was, um, yeah, yeah, riots, yeah. And last year, um, up till September, 324 mm. people died in prison, and a third of those were self-inflicted. Um, so, you know, this is impacting on, um, you know, people's lives. And that, that yeah. impacts on them, yeah, and uh, and they've committed a crime, but it's not a crime with a life punishment. Yeah. Um, and, but it also impacts on their families. And we know that kids who whose parents are in prison suffer, particularly mm. those whose mums are in prison. Um, and that has a generational impact because then those kids grow up, potentially end up in care, and yeah. the cycle starts again. So, yeah. you know, as a society, we need to start thinking about doing things differently, like you say, yeah. about rehabilitation. 
So, I mean, is this like one of the a top of your agenda? Because you're a PPC, and we explained this on last week's podcast what a PPC is. So, a, 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 it's a, a post political Christmas present, right? Or is it... Sort of. It's, it's, it's a, a prospective oh, yeah. parliamentary candidate. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I got that right. I mean, it was close enough. Because um, you don't get to be a parliamentary candidate until the election's called. So okay. this is about um, being the campaigner, the spokesperson for the election. Right. So th- this, is, this, is on, this is close to your heart. This is on, on top of your agenda. This is something that goes down all through all communities, right? So if, if we're talking about Millwall later... Does that can can a foot does a football do football communities like do they do they breed into that kind of thing helping through the community as it were? Yeah, like so. Um, I think Arsenal football team do some really good work in the community with young okay. people with mental health problems. Yeah. Um, a lot of football clubs do employment and training uh, sort of internships for um, kids growing up, and you know for young men in particular. Football clubs are often like a massive influence on them, yeah. so they can do so much to sort of tackle stigma, to um, you know get get positive messages out there to men, and and um, I think that's a really important role that they play. Yeah, I, I can come in and that from a personal perspective. Despite Millwall's Community Trust actually doing work with uh, I think young offenders and so on as well. Um, when I was younger, I was involved uh, with NACRO, which some people might be aware of, which is a criminal reduction charity. Um, a lot of my friends were involved in the football team that had been established by that charity, so I got involved as well. Um, I'm not saying I was the worst kid in the world, but I, I, I did stray into some bad circles occasionally. And football was something that gave me a, a structure and um, an authority that I respected mm. and uh, an opportunity to sort of learn more about myself and and become part of a community self-esteem um, like building yeah self-esteem yeah. and become part of a community that respected me yeah um and it helped a huge amount for my growth and and definitely my sort of direction away from some of the paths that other people in that team took i mean yeah. we had some people in that team that were in youth offending services for for quite some time um, and it's that sort of rehabilitation work or preventative work as well that intervenes early and focuses on the individual and about how to shape their lives that will deter people from crime, not longer prison sentences, not making prison tougher and some of the sort of right-wing press claims about how we're going to solve people's attitudes towards committing crimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what are the government getting right and what are the government getting wrong on this? Well, I don't think it's just this government, actually. I think it's a problem that successive governments have had, which is why we've seen this increase in the population. Why is that like a short-termism? Sort of I think it's because there's so much fear that if we talk about prison reform or if we talk about rehabilitation, that we're being soft on crime. And actually, what matters to everyone is reducing crime. And if what works to reduce crime is rehabilitation... But we're locking people up in overcrowded cells where they're locked in their room most of the day. So they're not even doing any work, any training. They're not being rehabilitated. Mm. They're just being warehoused. And that's not reducing crime. So that matters to everyone, not just woolly-hearted liberals like us. Yeah, and especially (laughs) if you consider like someone, if if they're a first-time offender, you go in, you come out more of a criminal than you went in. Um, And people know that. People are aware of that but they don't want to take on the bigger issue of reform. And I think actual like responsibility of society. Yeah, there's some really good voluntary sector schemes out there, aren't there? Like yeah. the Big big Brother and Big Sisters programme. Yeah, yeah, and, no, certainly. 
like things like the football programs where you know you can get involved in volunteering and um and do more to prevent things getting escalating in the yeah. first place we're not gonna kind of rehabilitate everyone no. like, there is a place for prison i think in in society we do need yeah. to punish um criminals who've committed a crime and we need to make sure that victims feel that they have got justice but and we need to kind of set set boundaries mm. in society but like and then really good evidence and things like restorative justice which is where victims talk to um can meet with the people who committed crimes against them and talk to them and say okay, like this yeah. is what you've done this is how it impacted on me and that's yeah. really delivering results so we need to look at the evidence about what works i think yeah. that's what's most important I think the impact on families was something that I yeah. wanted to mention. I kind of mentioned it briefly, but um, if you look at kind of um, sort of the, the, the some of the policies that are introduced, which I think are basically there just be, to kind of look tough. So one of the policies okay. is around sort of saying when you're first in prison, you have to earn the right for certain um, privileges, and one of those privileges is visits visits with your family. So when you first me. get there, like you have to earn the right to kind of see your kids. That's insane. I didn't know mm-hmm. that. Um, I think it was a recent change that that's come about. But I, I think, like, you know, the, your kids should have the right to have access to their parents. They've not committed a crime. And so some of the time, I think these policies are designed in, you know, really unhelpful ways. Well, what should we do? Let, let's just use the family and the children as a tool. Yeah, that's, that's a really good uh, precedent. When you first come into prison, we're going to, you know, we're just going to show you just precisely what we're going to do to you. What a great way of doing it. Oh and, and again, I don't want to sound like a woolly-hearted liberal, but sometimes people who go into prison are quite vulnerable. You know, the, the statistics on women in prison, who, the numbers who self-harm, who, um, you know, are at risk of suicide, um, who, you know, you go into that situation, and if you've not been into prison before, that's quite a vulnerable situation. And to have the kind of toughest moments when you don't have any of those privileges happen at the beginning, yeah. I think is is quite worrying. Well, no, I agree completely, especially if you take into consideration how some women... Are are, you know, in there for violence against their husbands because of coercive control, you know, and they've been forced into violence against their husbands, imagine imagine what that must be like, you mm-hmm. know, and, and if we've got, you know, problems with mental health in the NHS at the moment, what the hell are they going to be like in the prisons? I think one of the most important things Emily picked up on there is about evidence. And it's not like um, we're working in a microcosm here and we just don't know what works. If you look across Europe, we see what happens to reoffending rates of different policies, um, and we see what happens when rehabilitation is taken seriously. Prison populations go down, there's less crime in those societies. There's also a bit to be said about more equal societies having less crime as well, but generally there is evidence out there. Other countries do it differently and do it better and end up with better results. Um, and the problem in this country, and I think you alluded to it, is that there's a lot of policy made up for political purposes only, to look mm. tough, to win votes ahead of an election, because they think it's what the public wants to hear, mm. um, and it's not evidence-based, and we need to stand up for, for what makes sense according to what gives us results. Well, I think that's funny because, you know, I think there's an awful lot of, of politics at the moment that is just based on trying to win the vote, trying to get the attention of the public. A uh, prime example today probably would be Jeremy Corbyn and his U-turn on immigration, um, I don't know if, Emily, if you've heard anything about that today. I only saw the headline, so yeah. he's saying that um, immigration is not a bad thing, but, um, yeah, but yeah. You know, it doesn't always kind of chime with previous things that the party has said or that he's personally said. You know, do you remember the control immigration mugs that they had at the last election? You know? No, I don't. Um, they, they actually 
produced mugs that said control immigration on them. Wow. Which, yeah, it's quite a different um, position. Yeah. Um, it's just slogans. It's just getting tough and, like, getting tough on... It's just the ancient old things. It gonna, we're going to get tough on crime, you know, Reagan and all that or whoever. I'm trying to think of a... Thatcher, I'm just going to throw out a, a Tory because I don't <laughs> like the Tories. But, you know, let's get tough on crime. I, I'd say let's get tough on, on the cause of crime and the repetition of crime. Um, but, yeah, I'm sounding like an MP now. Um, a little bit like Tony Blair, perhaps. Yeah. Actually, it was just, um, you were talking about overseas aid. The amount of money we spend, yeah. I don't have the figure off the top of my head, but we spend a huge amount of money on prisons in this country. We've, we spend hardly anything on overseas aid, but you never see the argument, we spend too much on our prison system, when actually we're not reducing the kind of the, the unnecessary mm. imprisonment, really, and spending that money more effectively. I, I think it, it does, everything is cyclical. Unnecessary imprisonment is definitely on, on the same scale as... Uh, Drug, drug abuse you know we, we, we hound people and uh, on, on drug abuse so it, it, if this is still going on in 10 years bloody hell that's, an, that's another classic example of where policy is often too much based on the politics and not enough on the evidence of what is effective yeah um, because we really need to kind of work out more effectively how we can help people not just with like illegal drug problems but with alcohol problems as well mm. we don't we don't really invest in treatment for alcohol misuse yeah, in England. And absolutely. It's also about that whole British tendency to just, you know, just to, to keep everything inside and not talk about it, you know, to, to, to your friends and family. And then also, as a country, we do not, we don't tap into this topic enough. And when we do, it is just very headline-grabbing bullshit. And we don't actually just grab it by the scruff of the neck and give it to someone and run with it and do something about it. And um, if they had done, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So, and even when we have like scientific evidence-based advisors, they don't often yeah. necessarily get the right response from the Home Office when they publish a report that says one thing, and it's politically difficult, then it gets binned. Exactly. Um, I think, do you remember the last um, government, there was um, Norman Lamb, I'm uh, sorry, Norman Lamb, Norman Baker, I always get my Normans confused. <laughs> yeah, um, Norman Wisdom. Don't tell Norman Lamb I said that. Yeah. Um, Norman yeah. Baker, he um, did this uh, big report about um, legal highs, and he was um, talking about you know d different ways of kind of trying to approach it differently so that you kind of um, you can regulate more effectively and protect young people more effectively but that was quite yeah. um, swiftly kind of sat on because yeah. it was it wasn't seen as kind of politically um, a good idea yeah. well you can't move on that because we've got this uh, subject coming up you can't move on that now because we've got this thing we need to put in the press la 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 yeah and also yeah. that kind of sense of um, you know fear from the government of we, we better not do anything that kind of is seen as being soft on drugs um, even if it's like you know the evidence internationally is yeah, that it I think, works. I think there's so many similarities between our drug policy and our attitude towards general imprisonment as well. We we, we want to be seen to be tough on it. This war on drugs, which has failed five times over already, uh, again evidence being ignored. Um, although Lib Dems did make some inroads on it, and I think I think Nick Clegg's doing quite well. Nick Clegg interview inbound. Nick Clegg interview inbound. People are at least starting to give, open the door to the idea of decriminalising areas of uh, the drug industry being a good thing. So we're at the very, very start of, of that change, I think. But we, it's people, liberals like us that need to drive it forward to make sure that it becomes a reality. Yeah. 
I can almost guarantee that once we have scientifically proven this, um, that and the, the the sums add up, and then obviously the cases of people who have been treated like human beings, will the crime rates is going to drop? And as soon as we start engaging with that properly. Okay, well, hope you enjoyed that part of the show. Uh, next up is Nick Clegg interview. So I'd never been to meet Nick Clegg before. I had previously um, rubbed shoulders with him, so he vaguely recognised my face, but I, I'm pretty sure he was being polite. Oh, yeah, I, I recognise you, you, you strange sort of chap, you. Um, what are you doing in my office? Uh, but anyway, it was a good interview uh, for me. I had a bunch of uh, questions that I stuck to for once, uh, and he answered them eloquently and skillfully. Watch out towards the end of the interview. He starts talking about uh, Prince and Bowie, and uh, that that really tickled me. That made me happy. I hope he comes back onto the show, and I also hope that we're able to get a little bit more into his music. I don't know why. Something behind his eyes suggested that, you know, he was genuinely gutted about the death of Prince and, and David Bowie, as, of course, quite a few of us when, when did the fire start in you, the, the, the decision to, to get enter into politics? I didn't have a sort of epiphany moment or a sort of revelatory uh, experience where yeah. I sort of blinding light descended upon me and it was this Lib Dem light that said I must follow the path. It wasn't it wasn't okay. anything like that. It was yeah. it crept up on me much more. Um, with that with the with the benefit of hindsight I can see now that whilst my family was not sort of political with a big P in the sense that, you know, my, my parents were not sort of card carrying devotees of one party or another, politics with a sort of small P certainly infused a lot of a lot of family life, partly because of the just the sort of background of my parents, my dad's mum mm. you know, was Russian and had suffered all the sort of turmoil of the Russian Revolution, had lost large members of her family. And my yeah, mum yeah, was born yeah. in Indonesia and spent uh, some formative years in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. So anyway, in other words, the idea that big political ideas can have big consequences was instilled uh, in me and my brothers and my sister at quite an early age. Yeah. And then... I have to say, you know, I'm just turned 50. I think for a lot of people of my generation, a lot of my early political awareness, you know, in my late teens, 20s, was was very much driven, uh, you know, by my reaction to uh, the then sort of, you know, blue in tooth and claw Thatcherism. Okay, and, yeah, and particularly yeah. the kind of slightly sort of soulless worldview that there was no such thing as a society. And if you layer on top of that, Again, this is all with the benefit of hindsight, the kind of internecine battle, battles about Europe that were raging at that time. So what, um, sorry, what year is this, 80-something? Well, these are the 80s. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I went to university in the mid-80s, uh, yeah. mid to late 80s. Uh, and um, so I think, I think Europe, oddly enough, given that you know, Europe is now absorbing so much of my time and so much political debate, Europe was, uh, right from the outset, a very big you know, catalyst for yeah. me. And, and, and at that time, Paddy Ashdown's sort of ardent and unapologetic internationalism, uh, illustrated, funnily enough, not so much by a European issue, but by his commitment to treating um, Hong Kong yeah. uh, citizens uh, and giving them passport rights 
remember that cut through to me as a young man. So it was kind of a mixture of a belief in internationalism when the government of the day was turning inwards, uh, a dislike uh, and a kind of re recoiling from the very kind of soulless approach to, towards society by Margaret Thatcher. And of course, like everybody, my own background, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So that your dad didn't sit you down around a campfire and go, now look here, son. You know, it's time to become a liberal. No, 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 no. no, no, the, no, the, no. The, it wasn't birds and the bees. It was, it's, it was liberal policies. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was. I mean, it, it's, I mean, dare I say it, it's one of the great strengths and weaknesses of liberalism is that for a lot of people, myself included, you know, I arrived at liberalism. You know, it was a journey. It, was, it wasn't. It wasn't like a social uniform. It wasn't, yeah, so it wasn't. It wasn't like putting a jacket on in the morning thing. And and of course, it's important to remember that for you know for quite a lot of people, it's changing these days. But certainly, in previous decades. You know, politics was as much as anything else about social identity. It's just something you did if, if you came from a particular yeah, community yeah. or a street yeah. or, yeah. Uh, you know, if you come from the north or the south or the city or the countryside. I, for, for me, actually, it was, it was probably driven as much as anything else by, um, by you know, by, by kind of some a pretty instinctive, almost primitive belief in kind of internationalism. And, and, yeah. also, uh, and also, you know, kind of like any young person, a sort of just anti-establishment feeling. I, yeah. think, I do think liberalism... No mohawk, is, though. No more no. hair. Okay. No. Yeah. No, no. No. So, so you've you've stuck around because Cameron's left. Mm. Um, how does it feel after all that? After ab the absolute disaster of mm. the referendum, mm. and you know, obviously, the following the two thousand fifteen uh, general election results, you 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 still stuck around that that yeah. how, what, how did that come about did you never sort of think look oh my you know this is this is such a weight you know and, and, and couple that with brexit was it just no I, i've still got something to say or um well clearly still got i think i think immediately after the general election i mean that was such a that was such a hammer blow really um and i'd been you know i'd been running at 200 miles an hour for every second of the day for nine well, close well not quite a decade nine eight nine years yeah of course yeah uh i mean i i, I realized with some with, almost with a sort of bit of a shock really that after i stood down uh as party leader in in the spring of 2015 looking back on it i don't think i really had I could only remember one summer holiday which was uninterrupted over God, you know, yeah. many, many years. And I couldn't basically think of a single weekend which I'd had to myself for, you yeah. know, for probably from the time I'd uh, started to lead the party eight years before. So, uh, so to be honest, my first instinct was not certainly not about sort of, you know, bailing out, yeah. uh, but was just to catch my breath. I did, I did need some time to catch my breath. Well, and well yeah. About stuff. And, uh, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Beyond, but after that, and particularly when it became obvious that in, in the run up to the referendum, this was going to be the sort of... The, the issue of our of our time really I mean it's just something that I have felt passionate about all my life I you know Miriam and I it's not just professionally I spent 10 years in and around the European Union in the European Commission as a as an MEP in the yeah. way I've described to you earlier I come from a very European background I'm condemned really genetically to, to, to be a, a sort of a pro-European but also you know Miriam and I our first two our two oldest boys were born yeah. In Brussels, you know, when we first got married, we both worked there. So there's just very profound ideological, political and personal attachments to, not to Brussels as such, but to the idea that, you know, Britain serves itself and its people best when it's open and engaged with Europe. So, I, mm. I, you know, it's a, I could hardly, it just, it just is not in me to sort of say, oh, well, I've had my innings. I'm feeling a bit. I've, I've run out of puff, and uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to join this fight. It's the, it's the most important issue of our time, and I feel yeah. uh, 
as long as I feel I've got a useful contribution to make, other people might judge that I don't, but as long as I feel I have a useful contribution to make, I want to continue to make it. Talk about second referendums. Are you, do you believe in a second referendum? Yeah, of course, yeah. of course, of course. For, for the very simple reason that the, the Brexiteers won the argument on the 23rd of June to exit the European Union, but they have no mandate, and they have no right, right to claim, as they now are, that they have a mandate on how you do that. Yeah. And so it's, it's uh, you know, listen, if, if the Brexiteers, if Gove and Farage and Johnson and all these, all these opportunists and, and, and populists had clubbed together and actually, you know, produced a manifesto, yeah. which people could sit around in their living rooms and around the kitchen table looking at and, uh, and which described, not in exhaustive detail, but with some level of sort of precision, what Brexit actually means for the country, yeah. then, then I frankly think the case for a second referendum would be pretty weak because yeah. then they, would have the, you know, they, they really would have the mandate to not only exit the European Union, but to do it in the way in which, they had, you know, which they'd explained to the British people first. But they very deliberately withheld from the British people any description of a future Brexit reality. And they did that. I mean, yeah. you know, it's not as if we weren't warned. I mean, this, this, this rather sort of shadowy character, Dominic Cummings, who apparently had a lot to do with how the uh, Brexit campaign was constructed, you know, wrote lengthily, months before the referendum, that the mm. one thing that the Brexit side must do is not get pinned down on what on earth Brexit means. And, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, so they don't yeah. have the mandate. So I think on, a, you know, on an issue of basic democratic principle it is important that mm. the British people that you bookend this just as much as the British people have the say at the start of the journey they also have the, the you know as Tim Farron as I think very compellingly yeah. complained uh, complained sorry explained <laughs> uh, as Tim has explained that they also have a say on the final destination yeah yeah no I, I, I personally feel um, I joined in June uh, and I, I joined because I saw uh, Tim's speech in Trafalgar Square on YouTube. So the, the British people have given their view, uh, and it's a majority for leave, and you've got to respect that view. There's no, it would be wrong to uh, ignore what the British people said. The triggering of uh, Article 50 is right to wait to do it at the right moment to get the best deal for Britain. Uh, the problem at the moment is that we'll get a very bad deal as things go. So my sense is that this is a, this today is a is a, uh, a rally to bring people together to express a view to the outside world that Britain is an outward-looking, decent European country. That whatever we do going forward about being a member of the European Union, or not, um, that we don't want our neighbours to think that we don't like them. Bloody hell, wow, you know, he's, he's got some, you know, behind him. It's exciting, you know, and it's a contrast to yourself, not in a negative way, just that, you know, you're two quite different people. How, how is it going with, with, the whole, with, with, with Tim as a leader? Is, oh, I think he's you... doing really, really well. He's doing brilliantly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I want to do nothing other than other than uh, support him and I, I think he's uh, I think he's I mean it's, it's fine. I found out myself many many years ago when you start out as a leader it, you know you, it takes a while to introduce yourself to, to, to people up and down the country but I think he's doing absolutely brilliantly. I see the benefits of the EU and those that mm. that can't are, are there we've got the A versus the B and Theresa May is, is putting herself firmly you know mm. disregarding the 48 mm. That riles you. I can, I can, I can tell when you know. Oh, you know. Of course, well, sorry. Yes. So there's a. I draw a distinction between um, spelling out the virtues of the European Union. Yeah. There are failings of the European. Union, there are flaws of the European Union. Yeah. But that's one thing. I think the thing that you're driving at, which I strongly agree with, is I just very, very, viscerally feel that no prime minister, least of all a prime minister who has no mandate of her own, mm. who didn't, doesn't deign to be elected by anybody. Yeah. 
and whose party has only scraped into power with 24% of the eligible vote. I just don't think someone in that position has the right, when presiding over such a deeply divided country, divided by geography, mm. Scotland, London voting you know, to remain while other parts didn't, uh, Northern Ireland voting to remain and so on, obviously divided according to class and economic uh, well-being, um, but crucially, or perhaps most crucially of all, also starkly divided generationally, where mm. younger people voted in droves, in overwhelming numbers, to stay in. I just think if you're confronted with a divided nation like that, it is your duty. It's a kind of, it's a kind of almost a moral, constitute, sort of quasi-constitutional duty to seek to try and heal those divisions and find mm. an accommodation between those sides. Mm. And she hinted at that's what she wants to do in, in you know, in her rather sort of vapid uh, New Year's. Uh, statement but everything her government is doing and everything they're doing and sort of heading towards a hard brexit you know placing their particular uh, you know view of how freedom of movement should be brought to an end uh, above all other priorities you know she is delib she's in a sense almost airbrushing out of the equation the dreams the aspirations the needs yeah. and the rights and the values of close to 50% of the voting public. And that makes me very angry, because it's wrong. It's wrong in a mature democracy to say to the losing side, particularly when it was such a narrowly won contest, you are basically disenfranchised. You are yeah. delegitimized. You have no voice. You have no right to express what you believe. And that's why I think it is tremendously important that we as Liberal Democrats speak up mm. for the nation as a whole, but perhaps most especially right now for those people who are being told that they have no voice. I mean, it, Philip Hammond uh, and uh, Greg uh, Greg Clark—they're reasonable, uh, reasonable people. Today, Philip Hammond was talking about um, Germany uh, and going to Germany with interests, uh, you know, trying trying to steady the ship. Are there Tories that? Oh, I know there are Tories, but realistically, can we expect the Tories to put pressure in the months ahead? Past, you know, Article Fifty triggering Article Fifty to do to do some kind of sense with to, to, to not necessarily deal, but just to help them see sense. No, of course, of course, there are conservatives uh, who who don't believe we should exit the European. Ken Clark. Well, no, but there's more more. Yeah. I mean, Theresa May. Not not that she did very much about it. Was nominally at least in favour of remaining. I think the problem for them. Well, it's 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 manifold. Firstly, uh, I mean, it, it, for me at least, it is of course slightly amusing to hear or to see now that Philip Hammond is emerging as one of the most reasonable international figures. Because when I yeah. sat around the cabinet table with him, you know, he was afraid like a lot of these conservatives. Before he knew anything about the European Union when he became foreign secretary. So before he became foreign secretary, he indulged in the worst kind of sort of cardboard cutout, sneering condemnations of the rest of the European Union and the and the, and the frailties of the Eurozone. So my 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 kind of message to people like that is is Great that they're fighting the fight now within, you know, behind the battlements of mm. Whitehall. But where on earth were oh, they right, ten right, years yeah. ago? If these yeah. people had come to the conclusions they've now come to, very, very late in the day, welcome though that is, if they'd come to that realisation earlier, we wouldn't be in the terrible state we now are. And then the second problem for them all is that Theresa May has contrived somehow to, to, to make herself sort of hostage of the hardest hardline Brexiteers on her back benches. Yeah. Because she's, I think, almost psychologically perhaps overcompensated for the fact that she knows that she was treated, or is treated by, with suspicion 
by the real headbangers on her back benches, and of course, uh, where, because she feels she owes something to you know these sort of splenetic characters like Paul Dacre, the editor of the Daily oh, Mail, who backed her to become leader of the Conservatives. She's she's perhaps unwittingly become a prisoner of people who don't really wish her much. Yeah. You know, much good, and certainly don't have the interests of the country as a whole at large. So she's she's become a prisoner of some very, very vituperative, mm. that's you know, a good narrow, word. vested interests, and that's that's a huge error. What she should have done, because she was going to become a leader anyway. She didn't need to. She doesn't need to pander to Paul Dacre and his slightly kooky, swivel-eyed prejudices. What she could have done the moment she became leader is to say, "Yes, I'm leader. Yes, I'm the Brexit." But no, in the same way that I'm going to disappoint. Nick Clegg and Tim Farron and ardent Europhiles and Liberal Democrats. I'm also going to disappoint Liam Fox and, and uh, John Redwood and, and, and Paul Dacre. I'm going to plot the best middle course that I can for the country. So, oh, she could have done that right at the outset. And I think the country, people like us, was, oh, but it's still better to stay in the European Union. But yeah. we would have accepted that she's trying to make the best of a difficult hand being dealt yeah. with. Her. Instead, she's lurched to sort of say, I only really believe in the kind of, you know, as yeah. she said this weekend, you know, Europe, the, the, the relationship with the European Union where we can't retain yeah. any, any bits of it. Well, which of course is nonsense. There are, yeah. of course, countries outside the European Union which have retained bits of it. What do you think of her um, fairer society? I mean, I could give you my opinion, but I don't think, I, I don't really want to swear too much on the uh, podcast. But it's, I mean, I, I personally find these bromides and platitudes. I mean, I've been in politics long enough. Every, every politician of every party says they want, they want, you know, cake at tea and the sun to shine and the traffic to flow and everyone to be lovely. To, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just a bundle yeah. of cliches. And I, for me, I suppose it, it resonated, or at least it, I took a particular interest in what she had to say about mental health, because I was one of the first sort of prominent politicians on the national stage to kind of break the political taboo about uh, mental health many, many years ago. Now, when I, one yeah. of the first, one of my first turns as leader of the Liberal Democrats, this is what, nine years ago now, um, uh, at Prime Minister's Questions, when Gordon Brown was Prime Minister, was uh, I was I think I was one of the first people to raise mental health at Prime Minister's Questions. This is almost a decade ago, yeah. and I remember at the time a sort of sharp intake of breath. Oh gosh, you know what a sort of what a controversial thing to do. And then in government, uh, you know, I introduced with 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 Norman Lamb some really radical changes. The first time we're now having waiting times being introduced for mental health. Um, the first time the NHS is sort of constitutionally legally bound to treat mental health with the same yeah. significance as physical health and so on and so forth. She as Prime Minister gets up with this great fanfare to talk about mental health. What is it about to? A couple of reviews mm. and 15 million quid is a drop in the ocean. Yeah, yeah. To do what? Not very much. And that, you know, I, I just think, look, boy, I've got the T-shirt, I know this. People are so cynical of politicians. They don't really any longer believe politicians unless they see that actions follow words and that's yeah. certainly not the case in her instance in her in her sort of case so we've got about a minute and a half or yep. two minutes um your proudest moment in coalition well, lots of proud moments i think one of the ones that i'm very very proud of is that uh you know there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of little children in this country who now uh whose parents you know struggle to you know pay for a healthy school meal who, who receive you know, a healthy school meal for, for free at lunchtime, and that there are many, many poor families up and down the country who, whose two-year-old toddlers now receive free, 30 hours of free sort of preschool support, um, both of which I introduced 
you know, very much at my, it was my incentive, my initiative, Liberal Democrat initiative, against a lot of resistance in parts of Whitehall. And I think they are those, you know, they are the kind of small steps that make a huge, huge difference to yeah. many, many people up and down the country. Yeah, and you're recovered from the, from 2015. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that speech, I've got to say, a lot of people joined the party because of your... your uh, yes, I wish I didn't have to the, give the speech, but anyway, the, the, there you your, go. Your, your... Um, Resignation, not resignation, was it resignation yeah, it was speech? Resignation. Yeah, yeah, resignation speech. I think a lot of people really felt that. I particularly did. I, I definitely Thank had a, a bit of a cry. But you do you do understand that a lot of people joined the party. Yeah, yeah, no, well, as that. I said, it's yeah. very nice to hear that, but yeah. I wish it wasn't a speech I have had to give. Before, Why do you yeah. think people joined, though, because of that speech? Oh, I think there was a very, sort of quite a profound sense uh, across the country. Um, amongst, you know, especially amongst folk who were kind of liberal-minded, if not at least at that point, or up to that point, liberal Democrats, who just felt that the general election result uh, was just unfair. Mm. You know, I think many people expected we were going to get a bit of a drubbing. Uh, I certainly, you know, didn't expect that we were going to triumph. Yeah. But I don't think anyone thought it was a fair, uh, you know, a fair outcome after five years of not perfect, of course not, it never is, no government is perfect, not perfect public service, but nonetheless a government, because of Liberal Democrats, which I think will be looked back upon as a very sensible, sane, moderate and stable government yeah. in a pretty unstable and not particularly sensible world. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, can I just ask you to say hello to yeah. the podcast listeners? Basically like a like an opening sting. Can you say, um, I don't know... Um, Hello, my name's Nick Clegg, you're listening to the Limehouse podcast. Yep. And if you get it in one go, you're better than Greg Mulholland. Hello, this is Nick Clegg, and you're listening to the Limehouse podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Wow, that was very good. Is that right? Very professional, we've done that before. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Are we good? I don't yeah, we've not actually here yet, so we've got one more question. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, no, yeah. yeah, okay, cool. Um, you meant, okay... Chopin, you still listening to to the to the old boy because yes, um, from time to time, yeah, I yeah, yeah. Because I, no, I'm not, I don't profess I'm an expert, but uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the the two. There's a piece whose name I've forgotten. That Miriam plays beautifully. I've completely forgotten what it's called. Um, I like the David Bowie. Well done. Right. Did you shed a tear? Yes. Yeah. And even more so when Prince died. Oh really? Oh god, yeah. Tell, tell, I was tell a me, huge fan of Prince. Tell me where you were when Prince died then. I was in New York. Yeah, I was uh, at a meeting of the Global Drugs Commission in uh, in New York, and yeah. I was absolutely polaxed by it because I'd seen him in concert uh, in early two thousand and fifteen, so it was almost two years ago now. Yeah, in Camden. Yeah, and he was just—I couldn't believe it. He was, and I hadn't seen him in concert for twenty-five years. Yeah, and he was as sort of captivating. Uh, Sort of quarter of a century later, as he was when I when I saw him in uh, well, actually the time I saw him before, yeah, I saw him in Canada was in was in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, in his hometown. Quarter of a century. Thanks very much to Nick Clegg there for his time on Brexit and his time on his political awakening and and all all everything else in between. Uh, basically straight on now to Millwall Football Club Bobby's going to let you know what exactly is going on and I'm going to pose questions and also flabbergasted outrage at at times so enjoy it and I'll see you afterwards I'm here with Bobby Dean, say hello Bobby 
Hello, Will, and hello, listeners. Hello, indeed. We are going to start talking about Millwall Football Club and the, uh, the problems they're facing at the moment. So, Bobby, right, you're going to fill the listeners in for us on this one? Yeah, sure. So, uh, essentially, uh, there's a scheme being put forward by a developer called Renewal. It's a luxury home scheme, predominantly, only about 12% affordable homes. Uh, 12%? 12%. I mean, I can come back onto that later, but it's, it's disgraceful for in a city borough like Lewisham uh, to, to give permission uh, for. Uh, but the big issue at the moment is that they need to compulsory compulsory purchase land around the stadium um, and there's a lot of contention around that. Uh, Millwall thinks that the compulsory purchase of that land will threaten the future uh, of the club in the borough and the decision's been delayed a couple of times now because more and more murky details keep coming out. We were speaking this evening, one evening ahead of the meeting that's been deferred twice that was finally going to make the decision and it's been deferred again, I'm hearing. Yeah, more to come on this as well. So what, I mean, why do you think it's been deferred? That to me is, I don't know, Does that sound, that sounds like someone's buckling a little bit under pressure or... Yeah, I mean, it's so messy, this. I'll say from the top that I'm not one to sort of point fingers at elected representatives and say politicians are corrupt or so on. There is a distinct smell coming from all this that makes you feel uncomfortable. First of all, renewal the developers. They've got lots of links to sort of former staff of the council. Um, They were founded by a former mayor, David Sullivan. Um, Their CEO now used to be a a senior officer at the council. So Steve Bullock, who's the uh, directly elected mayor of Lewisham, has had to stand away from all decision-making around this because of his links to it. So there's, there's a lot of sort of things to be questioned now. And this wasn't all out in the open from the start. So that's why I think people um, are feeling upset about the transparency around this. Yeah. Can I, can I just quickly ask about what Millwall Football Club does for the community? I mean, for, for a start, they're a major football club. And that is the foundation for a lot of people's social lives and the basis of community. Besides all the jobs that they offer for, for the local area and the sort of jobs they end up creating through local businesses starting up around the club, that, that's besides the point. They're, they're a community asset in on themselves. In addition to that, they've got this brilliant trust. It's one of the most uh, effective community trusts in the country. It has a hell of a lot of schemes involving uh, young people and elderly people and, and so on. And they're very active in the local community giving back in that sense as well. For me, there's just a fundamental misunderstanding about what football clubs are about by Lewisham Council because they seem to be pitching Millwall against developers' renewals as sort of two private sector interests that you know, don't carry any weight either way. But I don't see it that way. We, we have to side with Millwall Football Club in a dispute between them and a developer with seemingly dodgy links to the council, offshore bank accounts, threatening behaviour towards local residents around this compulsory purchase order as well, by the way. And and at the top of all that, no track record in delivering a scheme like the one that they're proposing. Rumours that they want to just flip it and sell it on as soon as they get all their necessary land and permissions in place. They're not invested in the local community at all. Um, and Millwall are a part of the fabric of it. So for me, if, the, if they are being pitched against each other, there's no contest in whose side the council should be on. Yeah. So you're telling me that this land will be sold off and that luxury apartments will be built on it? Surely not in London. In Surely, but I mean, I, I can't even envisage how that would happen. Yeah, I mean... I'd love to say uh, uh, it's been sold. It's not been sold. It's going to be Lewisham Council are going to assist in 
taking this land away from a community asset and giving it to a developer to in order for them to uh, to, to build luxury homes. Like I said, 12% affordable homes, disgusting. Um, they have got a fig leaf in this. You know, they want to build a leisure centre in phase two of the scheme. But we know what happens with projects like this. Phase two gets delayed and delayed and delayed while they cream off the profits from their luxury homes. And phase two never happens or they sell it on to somebody else who then tries to vary their permission and this scheme never happens in the light that they've originally intended. Um, it just sounds like sugarcoating, just plain sugarcoating to me, mate. You know, like just absolute trying to dress up a, a turd, basically. This this is a company with no stake or interest in the local community. They're out to make the biggest profit they can on this. And they're being pitched against Millwall Football Club, who, who are part of the local economy, who are part of the local community. And Lewisham Council seemingly are taking the side of this developer. And I just can't get my head round why. And this is why people are asking questions about all of the links that I, I, I said about earlier. Is this cronyism? Is this mates helping out each other out? I, I, I hope not. More detail looks like it's going to come because there's been another deferral, I, I, presumably because more evidence is coming to light, presumably because there's going to be more legal challenges to what's going on here. Yeah, what about the mayor, though? I mean, th- this for me is like, you know, he's been in there uh, 15, 15 years, right? So, I mean, complacency, possible, like, he's been corralled a bit? I don't know. Has he been pushed? Has he... I, I personally think that when you have a directly elected mayor at this level of government, so like local authority level uh, of government, it just holds way too much power. And over the course of 15 years, he's basically becoming untouchable. He gets elected every time because Labour gets elected every time. There's no threat of the councillors kicking him out because he's been directly elected. Um, he gets to pick his cabinet, so he's got his friends in there. Um, and what happens is what he says goes. Now, if he has interest in a scheme like this, being given the permissions it needs and the land it needs to to, to, to make all of his sort of close close friends happy, then he could lose his way. I, and it seems here that his his influence isn't isn't helpful. Is it? It certainly is not in the community's interest. Um, we have a system for you know checking the authority of the mayor and the cabinet. It's the overview and scrutiny committee. The overview and scrutiny committee. That's correct. Mm-hmm. They they've expressed deep deep concerns about this on multiple occasions and every time they do their concerns are ignored. I saw the latest report in response to the overview and scrutiny's concerns and the the way that they dismiss their concerns is I mean it's insulting really I mean they're being brushed under the carpet a lot of things that are being brought up um, the overview and scrutiny committee said it's quite concerning that you know we found this brochure that suggests that renewal might want to sell the land on and um, the report says something like oh well we won't deny that renewal instructed LSH to do something but they weren't told to do a brochure and that just sounds like a nonsense weasel way out of the yeah out of the situation. For me, though, like I, I know I've, I've, we've, we've campaigned in Broccoli in Lewisham previously, and one of our things was um, accountability. Fifty-three councillors out of fifty-four, the, the Labour, right? So they have fifty-three seats out of fifty-four. Where where is the accountability there, and and has that? played a part in where we are now with with Millwall Football Club. Absolutely. I mean, if there's nobody 
willing or able to stand up and ask the tough questions in a council chamber that's 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 one thing um those councillors that want to have dissenting feelings are pretty much silenced for for their career ambitions or because that they've got party loyalties or because they they don't want to derail sort of labor's reputation in a borough then then that's going to continue to go on as long as there's not a major opposition there obviously lewisham liberal democrats were the last major opposition in um lewisham and we're ready to step up and be that again um but we spoke about it a little bit earlier i really think that there's a case there to scrap the mayor altogether far too much power is concentrated in his hands situations like this happen when he becomes an untouchable figure. It's not the only time that we've seen directly elected mayors at this level fail. If you look at uh, Tower Hamlets and the overt corruption that went on there, you can also see how... It, what happened at Tower Hamlets? So, uh, look for rum, it's all ongoing, but, you know, mass accusations of corruption and Dodger Dills and exploiting his position as a directly elected uh, mayor in that borough as well. You know, at London, regional level, I, I can see the case for a, a figurehead, especially with the sort of different powers that they have and Manchester soon will have the same but at the local authority level I think the case for it is gone um, there's not enough checks and balances councillors lose too much power um, and yeah we need to go ahead and sort of scrap the position now and let Millwall be the wake-up call to that. Yeah and I think broadly uh, in the UK as well we've had Tim Farron uh, head of the Liberal Democrats pitching in um, about you know how how much uh, Blackburn Rovers means to him um, and how this is this could easily just happen to anyone. Simply a council comes in and says, on your bike, you know, I've, I've been in, you know, whoever's been in charge for too long, uh, there's money to be made, but, you know, it's all right, we'll, we'll give you a leisure centre, but can you just... Could you just piss off, you know? Because yeah. we've got money. We, we, you know, we want money, rather. You know, that, that is the state of British football, I think. I think that greed, greed, the disease that is greed, is coming in. And it's, and it's going, football fans don't matter, you know? Football, football fans can go hang. We want our money. Yeah, I mean, Tim's a f- proper football person. And I say that because I'm a proper football person myself. So I think I've got the, the right, right to identify him as it. So his instincts on this are correct. He wants to side with... The football club because he knows how important they are to people and it's not just the fans that are important to they're important to the entire structure of the communities that they exist within and things like the Millwall community trust as i mentioned earlier are just one part of that as well some of the situations you refer to there in wider football are often coming in because new owners have taken over and want to change things or there's you know different sort of drives for for clubs um, based on different things but in this situation it's absurd because we've actually got the local authority being the one that's causing the problem the local authority that should be looking at mills one of its crown jewels its greatest sporting asset one of its yeah. biggest community assets should be desperate for it to to remain a part, a part of the community in that way you know, Millwall being forced now to come out and say, yes, you know, if this continues, we are going to have to consider moving to Kent. Ludicrous. How, how can Lewisham possibly be allowing this situation to develop where, where, where Millwall feel like they have to say this to get the council to listen? In, under any circumstance, Lewisham needs to be on Millwall Football Club's side first and then developers that want to build luxury homes second. If Millwall are forced out which should obviously be just criminal. What what the hell are the community going to do to the to the Lewisham council? They're, that's a real worry. Well, I think 
I think we are going to stop it actually um, because I think the strength of feeling on this is too strong and and for those of people that are not directly connected to the football club either through being fans or living near the ground or benefiting from the trust or so on it's having a ripple effect across the borough because people are now fed up with the way this Labour administration is behaving they are behaving as if there is Nothing to respond to, nothing to listen to. It's a shoo-in for Labour. They get, as you said earlier, 53 councils out of 54. It's a comfortable ride for them. They don't have to listen or engage with the public. There's other examples of it across the borough as well. And everybody else is now latching onto this issue as the prime example of how Labour are just not listening. And they're fed up. And I think we've got elections in May 2018 and we're going to see a huge wake-up call for them in that respect. But I also think the bits between the teeth now, people are going to be willing to fund legal challenges. We're already seeing people attempting to get it called in by Sadiq Khan or Savid uh, Javid as well. There needs to be a public investigation to this whole whole thing as well, I think, uh, on some sort of level. Because, as I said, those links are still not quite clear for people and it's diminishing people's faith in politicians and politics and we need politics to, to to change the communities we live in and situations like this give politics a bad name mm. and they're giving politicians a bad name and they're they're diminishing the faith in our local authority how can anyone hear more about how can you hear more about it is there anything on twitter facebook yeah, definitely. I mean, it has started to get some national attention now. Jeff Stelling, uh, if you watch Sky Sports News, was talking about it. It's been picked up by The Sun. And the person who's been writing about it the most, um, to his credit, is Barney Rone or Rone or Rooney. We're not sure. Yeah, yeah <laughs> Rone. Um, yeah. But he's a Guardian sports writer. He's been following this brilliantly and keeping everybody updated of it, uh, of every passing detail. Uh, the other one that I'd say that you have to look out for is the one of the Mill supporters at AMS. Yeah. Um, that you can follow them on Twitter at a underscore m underscore s underscore group. Um, they've been digging uh, around uh, trying to find all the evidence they can for, for, for what's going on here. They're brilliant as well. And I just think show your support, show your solidarity. Like you said, this is about this is about sport. This is about um, sports role in communities. It, it, it may be Millwall first, but... If, if this is going to happen in an inner city borough like Lewisham, what next? More inner city clubs are going to be driven out yeah. of London. Manchester clubs could be driven out. I, I doubt we're, we're going to yeah. see it at Old Trafford just yet. But, but you know, it, no, it's no, the no. start of sporting being driven out, uh, sporting clubs being driven out of cities. Yeah, and also, you know, if, if something as big as a football club in the championship can get tossed aside, what about any other structure, any other form, library, theatres? You know, that is something I think we need to think about. And we could probably end on that there, but it's definitely worth thinking if that can go, what else can go for luxury housing? How much more we're willing to to sacrifice? Where where is the instinct of your local authority when it is siding with this developer that is cloaked in a shadow, wants to build luxury homes over, over this local football club? I just don't know. Thanks for listening this week, whoever you are. Whether you've been listening on a train, that's pretty much the most standard one, I think. Maybe listening whilst you're on a a rowing machine or a cross-trainer, in which case you're an idiot. Just carry on drinking booze. No, I'm joking. Uh, Thanks so much to Nick Clegg's people. Very, very generous, very accommodating bunch. And... That's about it, really. Don't hesitate.
to leave me an email, drop me an email, the Limehouse Podcast at gmail.com. Also, uh, we're on Twitter, of course, Limehouse Pod. It's fun. Get involved. Banter away. Uh, joke away. Uh, you know, you can you can even leave a, a comment on on the show if you like. Probably your best bet, to be honest. I mean, that's really what the show is about. And then uh, the obviously the Limehouse Podcast on Facebook. Until next time, take care, be nice to each other, don't forget, be nice to your animals, okay? They can't talk, so it's important to look after them, okay? And then also you've got uh, your Amdram Society, make sure you you keep in touch with them, they're important, you know, and and always uh, be ambitious, uh, never close the door on anything, and always say, but try and be a yes person instead of a no person, and give to charity, Uh, take your shoes off before you come indoors, make sure you're nice and nice.